Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 379. Everybody is killing everybody else, and no one is talking about it. Part 2. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Natalie, Dana, and Eva for signing up already. According to historians like Sir Frank Stenton, Earl Elfgar and his alliance with King Gruffith of Wales was likely the one true barrier that stood between Harold Godwinson and the throne of England. Which means, yes, you heard that right, Englishman. King Gruffith, a naftaf, was smack dab in the middle of an English succession crisis. But now Elfgar, as well as Elfgar's eldest son and heir, were both dead. And as a result, Mercia was being helmed by the young and inexperienced Edwin, who was likely only about 13 years old. And King Gruffith's problems kept coming. The fact is, he wasn't exactly popular with the Welsh at this point. Not only was he prone to pissing off key allies, there's also the fact that nobody was crazy about how he allied himself with all these Saxons. In fact, the Welsh scribes were so unimpressed with Gruffith's English-friendly foreign policy that they refused to record it at all. Throughout all these events, the Welsh scribes diligently ignored the king's close alliance with Elfgar in their entries. They just sort of pretend none of that was happening, which honestly is kind of awkward when you consider that their own freaking queen was Elfgar's daughter. And that should tell you how annoyed the Welsh scribes were, and possibly the Welsh in general. And now, with Elfgar dead and Elfgar's chosen heir dead, not to mention Gruffith's son and heir, who was a known figure in mercy and courts, who was also dead, well, suddenly, that alliance that helped King Gruffith secure his hold on the throne, despite any resistance he was getting from his own subjects, well, that was starting to collapse. Gruffith found himself in the most perilous position he'd been in for years. And that happened right as Harold Godwinson decided he needed him out of the way. Now, to be fair, it's possible that Harold Godwinson was just the luckiest man alive and everyone who ever presented any sort of barrier between himself and the crown just happened to conveniently drop dead, and those king-making betrothals just happened to collapse for completely innocent and unrelated reasons. That is possible, and if that's the case, and fate just handed Harold a suited ten jack queen and ace... Well, even in that case, if he wanted to win, he still needed that king. The trouble was that this particular king still had English friends. Given the political situation in England and the power struggle that was taking place in court, the newly appointed Earl Edwin of Mercia had every incentive to maintain a close relationship with King Gruffith, who was also his brother-in-law. Furthermore, other nearby lords, including Osborne Fitzrichard, who was governing Herefordshire, also had every reason to maintain a close relationship with this king. And in the case of Osborne, he was either married to or would soon be married to Nest, who was the daughter of King Gruffith. So what we're seeing here isn't really a story of England versus Wales. 
This is a story of dynasties and regional powers vying for control. And some of these rivalries were now very old and very deep. Land and money was at play everywhere, which meant striking King Gruffith down was not going to be a simple matter for Harold Godwinson. But Harold did have one thing going for him here. His personality. Historian Frank Barlow describes Harold Godwinson as an opportunist, and I think you would be hard-pressed to look at the facts and disagree with that assessment. Everything we know about Harold suggests that he played courtly politics well, and that when an advantage was presented to him, he never hesitated. And with the death of Elfgar and the political disruption of Mercia, with their new and young earl likely stricken with grief over the deaths of his father and brother, and the local nobility struggling to find a path forward, well, that presented Harold with the very opportunity that he needed. He just needed to move quickly, before anybody could get their bearings. And as luck would have it, or maybe as good planning might have it, Christmas was just around the corner. And Christmas in Wales, much like Christmas in England, presented would-be invaders with the best kind of opportunity. You know, so long as they didn't mind being on Santa's naughty list. Under Welsh law, the king's military was allowed to leave his service right after Christmas. It was basically a legal holiday, allowing the soldiers to travel and carouse every year. And then once their post-Christmas vacation was over, they would return to the king and wouldn't leave him for the rest of the year. And the English were well aware of this rule. And they used this same Christmas holiday exception to carry out the capture and execution of the brother of the king of Dehybarth in 1052. Historically, Christmas in Wales had the potential to go very, very badly. And personally, I was kind of reassured to learn that stressful and potentially explosive Christmases are a long and proud Welsh tradition. And apparently, my family are simply patriots. And this Christmas, the one in 1062, was a special one. Gruffith's guard was already down. Wales and England had been at peace since 1058. I mean, he had a f***ing treaty with King Edward. And sure, things had been rough in years prior, but there are no indications in the contemporary record that there have been any border conflicts recently. Things have been quiet. But at around Boxing Day, Earl Harold rode out of Gloucester, accompanied by a cavalry force. And he headed straight for Rhythan, which was King Griffith's Christmas residence. Now, had war been going on at this time, Welsh sentries would have been in place. Armed forces would have been watching for incursions. Defenses would have been established around the king. But King Griffith appears to have just been hanging out in Rhythan, you know, doing whatever he felt like on Boxing Day, probably enjoying some leftover sausage rolls, which, for some reason, are always better the day after. And he had no idea what was bearing down upon him. In fact, only as Harold and his cavalry force were closing in on the royal estate did anyone even spot them. The king was hastily notified of the attack as it was bearing down upon them, and he gathered what few companions remained with him for the holiday, rushed to the harbor, boarded a single ship, and fled out to sea. They were likely headed to Ireland. And later accounts do claim that that was indeed Gruffith's destination. Some of those later accounts even claim there were Irish Norse on his crew, and they were the ones who told him where to go. 
And that actually would be pretty good advice, because Ireland and Wales often gave each other's nobles safe harbor when things got too hot at home. However, if he did go to Ireland, it was a short trip, probably made even shorter by the fact that Cunan Apiago, the son of the previous king of Gwyneth, who Griffith had, you know, replaced, well, he was living in Dublin at the time, and he was growing in influence, which would definitely be awkward and was also potentially dangerous. And back in Wales with Harold Godwinson, well, when he learned that King Griffith had escaped, he ordered that the palace at Rhythen, along with all the remaining Welsh fleet in the harbor, be burned. Then he mounted up and headed back to England, apparently on that very same day. I assume he wanted to get back home before his own leftover sausage rolls, you know, got too soggy. And as the ships burned in the distance, it's unlikely that Harold could have looked at this as anything other than an absolute failure. He had come dangerously close to killing the king, and the Welsh defenses had failed utterly, but King Gruffith still managed to escape. And close wasn't good enough. Because now King Gruffith was exactly where Welsh kings like to be in those circumstances. He was out there on the loose able to move quickly and only fight when it suited him. Even worse, Harold had completely lost the element of surprise. Griffith was now alerted to the danger, and he now definitely knew that his mercy and ally was dead. So Harold's ride home was not a triumphant one. The treaty between England and Wales was now definitely broken, and instead of quickly eliminating Griffith, Harold had started a war. But there's no going back now. Gruffith wasn't going to take this lying down. And when it came down to it, this Welsh king was at his most effective when he was at war. Harold had delivered him a gift. And for the Godwinsons, the only way to get out of this mess was to fight this war and to find a way to win. So Harold sought out the aid of his brother, Earl Tostig of Northumbria. And together, they developed a plan for attack. But this time they'd wait until campaigning season. In the meantime, Gruffith landed back in Wales and began making preparations for war. The trouble, though, was that King Gruffith was expected to defend a territory that was larger than any previous Welsh king had defended. This was unprecedented, and it even included new lands that had been recently seized from the English that were particularly hard to defend. Much of the old border territory of Wales was rugged. Wales provided natural barriers, and Welsh tactics were built upon defending the land by using its own choke points and ambush blinds. But these new lands were out in the open. And there was also just a shit ton of land to defend. And this was compounded by the fact that Mercia had been knocked out of the fight. The young Earl Edwin appears to have been strong-armed into passivity by much more powerful elders in the English court. So Wales stood alone. And I suspect King Gruffith was starting to understand why these Saxons built so many forts on their side of the border. Making matters worse, one of Gruffith's chief strengths against the English was his ability to wield political feuds against his English rivals. He'd make allies with certain members of the English aristocracy and thereby add pressure to his enemies from within. But now all that had been flipped on its head. The Welsh were already getting irritated with Gruffith, 
and the land was stuffed with dynasties who were itching to launch a blood feud, as Griffith's rise to power had involved killing quite a few of their relatives and taking their stuff. Which meant that now it was Harold who was in a position to be making friends on Griffith's side of the border, rather than the other way around. Even worse, those members of rival dynasties would be able to provide important information to the English. Information like targets. One of the main ways that King Gruffith had asserted his power and become the first king of all of Wales was by seizing a number of critical cities and towns. Places that had important links to the sea. His kingdom was ringed with them. Carnarvon, Rhythan, Carleon, Bangor, these towns and cities were all up and down the coasts of Wales. And they were particularly important for Gruffith because he was a rare seafaring Welsh king. And as these were maritime-focused cities, they allowed him to exert his power and quickly move about his territory. So if you take them away, you take away one of the main ways that Gruffith held on to his kingdom. And one big problem with towns that are easily reached by the sea, at least in this circumstance, was that England was a seafaring kingdom. Most worrying of all, Harold had positioned himself in nearby Bristol, which was just across the Severn Estuary from Wales. And it was a harbor town. This was going to be a problem. But that being said, earls, even very powerful earls, can't just launch a war because they feel like it. And I want to launch a bloody war against a kingdom that's already beaten me once before because I worry they're going to get in the way of my plans to become king someday, wasn't going to play very well in court, especially with King Edward sitting right there. And while there were some accounts, like John of Worcester, who popped up nearly a hundred years later and claimed that actually Gruffith was the aggressor due to some sort of raid that no one talked about, and while John really was super sure that Gruffith did start this war, even though, you know, he had a treaty with King Edward, he didn't have any defenses in place, and he was taken by surprise by Harold right after Christmas, you know, just totally normal and absolutely believable things that John just accepts. Well, even with that heroic bit of revisionism that was coming out of 12th century Worcester, in the 11th century... None of the contemporary writers were talking about anything that John was adding in. And it was the contemporary people who would want a valid case for why they should risk their lives by attacking this incredibly powerful Welsh king. So what Harold needed was a reason to drag England into his war. And it's in the life of St. Gwynflu, a record that was written soon after these events, where we get a possible answer for how he did it. There was a band of English traders who sailed up the Welsh River Usk, and they found that the River Usk was manned, like many rivers were at this time. They were approached by Welsh officials, and the traders were told that if they wanted to do any business along that waterway, they would have to pay a toll. It was a really routine situation for the time. However, when the Welsh officer approached the traders and requested the toll, the English traders said no. Uh, please pay the toll? No. Well, then you're going to have to go back the way you came, boys. Sorry. No. What? We're not leaving. And we're not paying your stupid toll either. Come on, guys. It's been a long day. So either pay the toll or leave. 
No. And I want to talk to your manager. <sighs> Ririd, would you please come and speak with these gentlemen? And so Ririd, the nephew of King Griffith of Wales, got involved and presumably said the 11th century equivalent of what seems to be the problem here. And when the traders were like, your rude employee refused to let us pass, Ririd explained that that's Welsh policy that you either have to pay the toll or you need to go back the way you came. And the English traders essentially said, fuck Welsh policy. And so Ririd reached out onto the English trader's boat, grabbed the rope that secured them to their anchor, and cut it. And the belligerent English merchants floated helplessly back down the Usk and into the Severn estuary. Afterwards, the sailors and their ship, which I assume was named Curveball at this point, headed straight for Earl Harold and, quote, narrated the disgrace and derision inflicted upon them, end quote. And what they told Harold, among other things, was that the Welsh stole their anchor, which, you know, is a totally normal and fair way to interpret that interaction. And then Earl Harold, taking whatever excuse he needed, basically shouted, freedom isn't free, and prepared his army. Now, if the life of St. Gwynflew has the right of it, and considering how close in time it was to these events, it probably does, then it appears that Harold used a yellow cake style argument to get the war he wanted. Because obviously, he couldn't just come out and say the real reason he wanted this war. And in late May of 1063... Earl Harold launched a large-scale fleet from the port of Bristol. He then crossed the channel and began ravaging Welsh lands, beginning with nearby Glamorgan. Seeing the approach of such a large fleet, the local Welshmen fled to religious sanctuaries in the area, hoping that the saints would protect them. Meanwhile, Harold and his men went to work burning everything they could find. And once done, they advanced upon those same religious sanctuaries with murderous intent. The refugees were then forced to flee deep into the nearby woods. Harold's English army killed everyone they could find, seized all their possessions, and burned all their buildings. Nothing was spared. They even pillaged and raided holy sites, including the Church of St. Gwynflew. It was an act so vicious that the scribes writing the life of St. Gwynflew believed it had earned Harold a divine punishment that would mean the end of him. Which, you know, I'm sure he'll be fine. Anyway, so Harold and the English laid waste to anything and anyone they could get their hands on. And recall that all of this burning and killing and pillaging of holy sites was allegedly over an anchor. But curiously, despite all the theft that was going on during this campaign, they never retrieved that anchor nor do they even appear to have been looking for it all that hard, assuming it was there in the first place. Now, of course, the real reason that Harold was ravaging southern Wales can be found in Gruffith's own political history. Southern Wales had been the most difficult and most resistant territory to King Gruffith's authority. The treachery of Estrad Tewi, where Gruffith nearly lost his life, was in southern Wales. You'll also recall that Southern Wales was the last territory that King Gruffith conquered, and he only managed to pull it off with the help of Elfgar's Irish Scandinavian forces. And even after Gruffith became King of all of Wales, Southern Wales remained resistant. In fact, we even have poetry from this period that hints that among Gruffith's own companions, 
the ones from southern Wales were not particularly loyal. Making matters worse, Gruffith had his own personal rivalry in the region. You see, the most recent king of the Hybarth, the one who had taken over for King Hule after King Gruffith killed King Hule and nicked his wife, well, that new king had also been killed by King Gruffith. Turns out King Gruffith was murder on Dehybarth kings. And in this case, that slain king had a son named Caradog. And by this point, he was old enough to rule. And he probably would have liked to rule. And he certainly would have had a beef with a man who killed his dad. And Caradog was a southern Welshman. So the locals likely would have preferred his rule to that of this Gruffith guy from North Wales. Later sources from the 1500s actually go so far as to claim that Caradog and others had advised Harold on his invasion, and even requested it. And while Powell was writing about 500 years after these events, it's not impossible that in the months between Harold's surprise attacks and this later spring campaign, the English had been meeting with Welsh dissidents and finding pressure points they could exploit. Whatever the case, though, the fact was that southern Wales was Gruffith's weak spot. And if you were Harold and you wanted to make a show of force in order to demonstrate how dangerous it was to stay loyal to King Gruffith, and if you wanted to inspire a rebellion against this king, southern Wales was probably your best starting point. From there, you'd have your pick of dynasties that were deeply resentful of Gruffith, and they probably only needed a little incentive and a few promises of restoration in order to cause them to flip sides. It was a particularly brutal form of politics, but Harold wasn't the only one who was using brutality to turn the Welsh against their king. To the north, coming out of Northumbria, was Harold's brother, Earl Tostig, and he was accompanied by the Ferd. This northern land-based detachment ravaged its way through North Wales. And according to John Edward Lloyd, he may have intended to meet up with his brother at Anglesey. But on the way, Tostig and his English army were looting and burning northern Welsh towns, while Harold and the English fleet pillaged many of the southern coastal Welsh towns on its way to meet them. In response, it appears that King Gruffith employed the classic Welsh defensive tactic. He withdrew his forces into the woods and hills, and from there, they engaged in ambushes, guerrilla hit-and-run attacks, and harrying. And even the life of King Edward, which is explicitly pro-English and quite pro-Godwinson, takes the time to describe King Gruffith's tactical approach to this war, though they do try and frame it as cowardice. Quote, Gruffith, unequal to this fight, did fear to engage with these, and sought remote retreats, inured to lurk in distant dikes from which he could safely fly upon the foe, exploit barren lands with woods and rocks, he calls the brother earls with drawn-out war, end quote. The record is telling us that this campaign was a long one. Following the failed assassination attempt in December, the brothers had launched their follow-up campaign in late May. And rather than being a quick and decisive victory in which they were greeted as liberators, Harold and Tostig found themselves playing a game of cat and mouse with a foe who knew these lands far better than they did and who was well acquainted with this style of military strategy. 
The Welsh Chronicle adds that Gruffith had pulled his forces specifically into the Waste Valleys, which was just to the east of King Gruffith's stronghold of Rhythan. This was Gruffith's homeland, the center of his political and cultural support. And it was territory that he likely knew like the back of his hand. And from there, he would be able to provide staunch resistance to the English land forces. And now, neither Harold nor Gruffith were in a place to back down. This fight would have to be the end of one of them. Or all of them. And so it was here, in the rugged lands of Snowdonia and the valley of the River Conway, where the fate of Wales would be decided. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to that community and all our other communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>